Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon. Thank you for the the uh, availability and the ability to come and gather and, and meet in your name in a place that promotes your name. And uh, Heavenly Father, we, we ask for your guidance and assistance. There's so many people that kind of tackle the Bible as if it was like Shakespeare or some great piece of literature, which it is, but it's so much more. And we just cannot understand it with simply our carnal minds. So we ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would lead, guide, and direct us into all truth, open up our heart, open up our mind, prime our heart and mind to be able to receive your word, to understand it, uh, so we can apply it to our lives. There's so many cults out there who have misinterpreted and misrepresented the scriptures, and that's how cults get started. They just, you know, just latch on uh, like a dog with a bone to a couple verses and just run with it, and it just kind of gets all cattywampus. And, Lord, we don't want to do that. We want to understand Paul's writings the way he intended them to be understood. And sometimes that even flies in the face of our own Western sensibilities and our own denominational biases. So, Father, just help us, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth and uh, understand the issues that he was addressing here in Romans and what it means to us in the modern day. For we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we left off in Romans chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 14 today. Now, there's uh, 14 through 16 we got to get through, and then we're going to get into some pretty heavy-duty stuff, which may take two classes to kind of hash out and to finish out, because... Uh, the subject matter tends to be very controversial and very misunderstood in, um, in Christian circles. So in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 beginning with verse 14. So it says, for when Gentiles, now remember, Gentiles, when we think of Gentiles, we, uh, we think of Gentiles and we think of just purely non-Jewish, non-Hebrew stock. But Paul, when he said Gentiles, he did mean that group and class of people, but he also meant those tribes of Israel that were taken off to Assyrian captivity, that lost their identity, that lost who they were, and they assimilated into the Gentile cultures in which they found themselves in. So that is also what it means in regards to Gentiles, because even Paul the Apostle had accused Peter of acting like a Gentile when he was hanging around them. <clears throat> so verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the Torah, or who do not have the laws of God, do by nature the things of the Torah. Now, how can we do by nature the things of the Torah? What does that mean? It means that God has created us with a conscience that automatically knows what right and wrong is. When we do something, even if we weren't raised right, we didn't have the best upbringing, no matter, when we do something wrong, our conscience convicts us. We know that we did wrong. So it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the Torah do by nature the things of the Torah, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the Torah. Verse 15, They show that the work of the Torah, the law of God, if you will, is written in their hearts. That's our conscience. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts switching between accusing or defending them. Now see, this is the key uh, that causes lie detectors to work. Because our spirit being, which is created in the image of God, 
When we say something that's not true, our spirit man says, no, 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 that's not true, that's not right. And it registers in our physical body and is recorded on that machine. So that's why one of the first things they ask you is, what, what's your name? Oh, my name's Billy Bob Joe John. And it'll be like, lie. <laughs> you know, because you know that's not your name. Verse 16. On the day when God judges the secrets of men according to my good news through Messiah Yeshua, my mom always said, we're going to be shocked at who's in heaven and who's not. People that we expect to be in heaven won't be there. People that we didn't expect will because ultimately God knows people's hearts and he judges the hearts. So natural revelation, which is God's created order. We can look out into creation and we can know that there is a God. Because if you remember the last classes, there's natural revelation, special or divine revelation. Natural revelation is the created order. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that there's order in the universe and there has to be a higher being to have created and established that order. Divine or special revelation is the word of God itself. So natural revelation, our conscience, tells us certain things are wrong and therefore backs up the divine revelation when it is revealed to an individual. So somebody who's never heard the word of God all of a sudden reads it, oh yeah, I knew that was wrong. Kind of how that works. All right, so uh, read to you a quick verse from Hebrews 6, uh, 10, 16. And it says, this is the covenant that I will cut with them. After those days, says Adonai, I will put my Torah, my law, upon their hearts. And upon the minds, I will write it. So God's laws are already in our hearts and minds. At least the moral aspects of those laws. And, you know, it's God's laws that the Western world was based on. The Judeo-Christian values, that's where we got our laws. Uh, okay, but beware, because the tricky thing about the conscience is that it can be seared, just like a steak. <laughs> you know, just like Rambo in Rambo 3, I think it was, when he got shot through with that arrow. Takes, he opens up that, that uh, bullet, puts the gunpowder in, he sears that, he, he cauterizes that wound. And that's what we can do by desensitizing our, our conscience. So, you know, you have people out there that do horrible and desp despicable things. Cr serial killers. I'm sure that they felt pretty bad when they skinned that first cat. I'm sure they even felt pretty bad when they killed that first prostitute. But the more you do it, the more you get desensitized to it. But the reverse is true. You can also sensitize yourself again. Because when I was at Bible college, I spent an entire semester not hearing a single cuss word. I mean, we were only allowed to watch certain things on TV like sports and the news and stuff. So we didn't hear. And then here comes summer break. I come back home and I hear a cuss word for the first time in a semester. And whoa, it shocks my ears because I've been sensitized to that again. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, says this. Uh, maybe it was 1 Timothy. Let me check that out here. Okay, yep, yep, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Ruach, that is the Holy Spirit, clearly says that in the latter times, the last days, some will fall away from the faith, following deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
I mean, it's talking about New Age getting into the church, wokeism getting into the church. Through the hypocrisy of false speakers, whose own conscience has been seared. For you to be a false prophet, a false teacher, you've got to sear your conscience. You've got to go against what you know is true and start believing your own lie. That's what makes con men so great, is they believe their own lie. And that's how sometimes people can fool lie detector tests. Is because they have a seared conscience. All right. Okay. So now we're going to move on to verse 17 of Romans chapter 2. We're going to read 17 through 22. And the, the rest of this chapter is uh, going to be dealing with the very controversial, often controversial issue of circumcision. So hopefully we'll be able to, to see it and recognize it uh, uh, in, through Paul's eyes. So verse 17 but if you call yourself Jewish and rely upon the Torah, upon the law, and boast in God, you know, remember Jesus said, well, if God wanted to, he could raise up these stones to be sons of Abraham because the Pharisees bragged, well, we're sons of Abraham. Oh, yeah, well, that's great. You know? But if you call yourself Jewish and rely upon the Torah and boast in God and know he will and determine what matters because you are instructed from the Torah. And you are sure that you are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish and a teacher of immature, having in the Torah the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach not to steal, do you steal? You who say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? All right, so we will stop right there and comment on these things. <clears throat> so faith resulting in works. This is what he's talking about. Faith resulting in works. This faith comes before works. It's like putting the horse before the cart. We often say, oh, you put the cart before the horse. That's the wrong order. It doesn't work that like that. But if you put the horse before the cart, then everything's fine. So this is the key. Faith has always been the foundation. Even in Abraham, God instructed and told Abraham stuff to do, gave Abraham laws and instructions before Moses gave the Torah at Sinai. But what made Abraham right is that he believed what God said. He believed in God's laws, instructions, and he carried them out. It was his belief and faith in God that caused him to actually do what God said. So it's faith, and that faith resulted naturally in works. So it's faith before works. So basically it's from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not like I can take this Bible and put it on top of my head and strain really hard and get the Bible inside me by osmosis. It doesn't work that way. I've got to have the Word inside me, and once it's inside me, it's going to come out. Because when you truly accept the Lord and your heart is changed... Slowly but surely, your outsides will start to match your insides. You know, maybe you were a little hoochie mama and wore Daisy Duke shorts and, you know, were very seductive and, you know, wore makeup like Tammy Faye Baker and whatever. And then you got saved and then slowly you didn't wear as much makeup. Slowly, your, your Daisy Dukes got longer, you know. Then you started dressing a little bit more. I mean, it takes time, but you start becoming convicted because your conscience has been uh, sensitized again. 
and you change from the inside out. So this is kind of what Paul is driving at in this passage that we just read. So the Apostle Paul, Rafshul, presents the right priority of trusting and boasting in God for one's redemption and knowing his will and his way for your life, which is the Torah, God's instructions. This Torah, this law, is our light in order to lead the blind and those in darkness of sin uh, who presently don't see their need for the law of God or Messiah. So the Apostle Paul praises those who have their priorities straight in the matter. Now see, this throws people off right away because most of us in the Western church has been taught that the law is a bondage, that the law is obsolete, we don't need it anymore. And But the law is the foundation of Messiah himself. The Messiah is the living manifestation of the written law. How could it be done away with? Even Jesus himself said it wasn't in Matthew chapter 10. Don't think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. In other words, in the Greek and Hebrew, bring them into their full and complete meaning and understanding so that you too could walk it out. You know, I have a hard time of following instructions on a written page because I overanalyze. But if I have somebody to show me what it says, what it means, it's easier for me to pick it up. So you have, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They looked at God's instructions, overanalyzed, and added stuff to it that they thought was in the text but wasn't. And then here comes Yeshua, here comes Jesus. No, 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 just do what I do. Imitate me and you'll be all right. Follow me and you'll be fine. So here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking about the Torah being a light. And so it's, it's the written light, but we know that Yeshua is the living light. He's the living manifestation of the written Torah. And this is kind of brought about in the passage of Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and 17, which is quoting a prophecy. So in Matthew 4, beginning with verse 12, now, when Yeshua heard that John had been handed over, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, which was by the sea in the region of, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Now wait, let's just stop right there and let's kind of get off this little thing about light for just a second to hone in on Galilee of the nations. Zebulun and Naphtali were part of the lost ten tribes. And here it's called Galilee of the nations. You're even seeing that Gentile connection because that's what the word nation is. It's goyim, it's, it's Gentile. That's what that word nation means. So it's even implying that Zebulun and Naphtali are part of the nations because they've assimilated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the waves of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now let's get back onto the light theme. The people sitting in darkness, why were they in darkness? Because they didn't have God's law. They didn't have God's light, which is God's law. The people sitting in darkness, having seen a great light, and those sitting in the region of shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. From then on, Yeshua began proclaiming, turn away from your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we see that the Torah is a light, and Jesus, Yeshua, is the light. So Jesus and the Torah are synonymous. They're kind of one and the same. One is the written form, the other is the living form. Okay. 
Uh, moving on, back to Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 23. You who take pride in the Torah, in the law, though uh, through your violation of the Torah, do you dishonor God? For as it is written, the name of God is slandered among the nations because of you. Okay, we'll just stop right there. So here now Paul is switching. Instead of the horse before the cart, this is the cart before the horse. This is trying to let your works turn into faith. You, you can't do works and expect it to, to change. Okay, let's use AA as an example. A lot of everybody has come out of alcohol and drugs. You know, just just going through the program, going through the motions, you're not going to be rehabilitated. Just just physically going through the 12 steps is not going to help you unless the change has already occurred inside. And once it's changed inside, then those 12 steps mean something, and then you can follow them, and then they can actually make a difference. So it's no different from the Word of God. You can memorize all the verses, have all the Bible memorized, but if it's not a part of your heart, a part of your essence, a part of your being, it's not going to do anything. It's not going to mean anything. So now here, Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul, presents the flip side. Those who trust in the Torah for their redemption. He shows that no one can keep the Torah perfectly. And when you boast in the Torah and not God, you end up breaking the Torah in front of the world and thus blaspheme God's name and reputation. So this is, this is part of what taking God's name in vain means. You know, you just don't have to say GD or JC flippantly to take God's name in vain. When you do not act according to what the Word of God says and people see it and they see your hypocrisy and your disobedience, right then and there, you're taking the name of God in vain by your actions. It's like a dirty cop making all the other cops look bad. It's like a quack doctor whose practice makes all the other doctors look bad. So that, that's kind of the comparison there. Um, all right, so verse 23, it says, You who take pride. That's an interesting word because pride in and of itself is a violation of the law. Because pride is the original sin. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, that was not the original sin. The original sin happened before the garden. It happened in heaven when Satan, Lucifer, Hillel, rebelled and said, I'm going to be like God. It was pride. Hey, he was the praise and worship leader of heaven. He was the leader of the four living creatures. He thought he was all that in a bag of chips. His pride led to his downfall. So it says, you who take pride in the Torah, look what I can do. Look how great I keep the commandments. I've been keeping them since my youth. Well, yeah, you can go through the motions, but if your heart's not in it, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's like the principle of the cheerful giver. You know, if, if you just give just because you feel obligated to, there's no blessing or reward in that. And just like Jesus said, well, you know, you have these Pharisees who are giving their alms, blowing a shofar, blowing a trumpet, and then dropping coins into the person's lap. Oh, great, look what this Pharisee's doing. Look how righteous he is. He's helping a poor person. They already have their reward. They get the applause of men, they have their reward. He says, no, do this stuff in secret. Don't let pride be a part of it. And you know the whole don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing? That's really confusing to us Westerners, but this is the way the Hebrews understood it. Your right hand represented favor. Your right hand represented goodness. It was, it was the hand that you performed good works with, where you transacted business. 
They didn't have Charmin, and they didn't have you know all, toilet paper back then. So you did all your dirty business with your left hand. Your left hand also represented wrath, represented disfavor. So it says, don't let your right don't let your right hand know, or don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't let the stingy hand, the wrathful hand, know what the generous hand is doing. It's like sock puppets. The left hand goes, no, 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 we need that money. Don't, don't, don't give that person that money. You need it more than they do. And the right hand says, shut up, I'm going to give it anyway. You know, so that's, the, that's what it means. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's what that means. So pride is a violation of the Torah, and it's the original sin, the sin of Satan, that got him kicked out of heaven. Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is slandered among you, uh, among the nations, because of you. Humility should be the mark of a Jewish and Gentile believer. Pride and hypocrisy will cause the world to slander us and to think bad of us. I mean, how many times as a minister have I witnessed to somebody, went on visitation, invited somebody to church? I ain't going. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, I can't say that they're wrong because the majority of churches are full of hypocrites. We all are at some point or another. But you know what? That excuse is not going to fly before God when they stand before his throne. Why didn't you go to church? Ah, because it was full of hypocrites. That's not going to fly before God. You don't go because of other people or what other people say or do. You go because you love the Lord because he said, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Oh, yeah, there's always room for one more. Who, uh, who was it? Was it Groucho Marx said that I'd never, be a, I'd never be a part of a club that would have me as a member or something? <laughs> okay, so uh, moving on to verse 25. Dun, dun, dun. Here we go. It's going to be about the circumcision, which everybody gets their feathers in a ruffle about this. I remember Bible college, a little cute story. All right. Bible college, you have people from all over the United States and Canada come. So we had this, this girl from Georgia. And uh, so we're studying for class, and we come across something that has the word circumcision. She goes, now, what is circumcision? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, you don't know what circumcision is? So I just said, well, let's, you know, and I explained it to her, and she was just totally shocked and embarrassed and blown away. I'm like, well, that's what it is. But anyway, circumcision is indeed worthwhile if you keep the Torah. And see, people right here will say, oh, no, see, circumcision don't mean anything because none of us can keep the Torah. That's a lie. I can keep the Torah. I'm just not going to because my fallen nature won't let me. It's not that the, the Torah is impossible to keep. It's not like the, the, the Torah commands, thou shalt grow thy wings and thou shalt fly to the sky. Well, that's impossible. So if that was in the Torah, then yeah, I can't keep the Torah. But the Torah says, thou shalt not steal. Well, do I have the ability not to steal? Of course. Will I always follow that? No. I may steal somebody's intellectual property, somebody's idea. I remember when I was little, I stole a piece of gum from a, a little convenience store when I was a little kid. I mean, so it's like I can, but I don't. So it's not that it's impossible. All right, back to verse 25. Circumcision is indeed worthwhile if you keep the Torah. But if you break the Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, it's not that it, it, it's like you've made that circumcision meaningless. It's like you've you've. Um, it's like it doesn't matter. It's kind of like when you, in your sobriety, and you break your sobriety. All that work, it just you feel like it's just gone down the drain. It's like, well, what was that for? I just fell off the wagon. 
But you know what? You just get back on the wagon. You, 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 you get back with your sobriety. So if you're circumcised and you do something unworthy of the circumcision, it doesn't mean, oh, well, I'm screwed. It's like a diet. You, you, you get a, you, you're on a diet, and then somebody just, oh, man, I, I just love seven-layer cake. And you eat <laughs> half of a seven-layer cake, and you blew your diet. Well, since I blew my diet, I might as well just forget it. Well, no, just get back on the wagon. And that's the same thing with circumcision. It's not saying that if you get circumcised and do something wrong, well, well, you blew it, so that was a waste of time. That was a waste of an ounce of flesh. That's not what that's saying. But yet that's what Protestant Christianity keeps perpetuating. Verse 26, Therefore, if the uncircumcised keeps the righteous decrees of the Torah, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So when Abraham began to obey God, was Abraham circumcised or uncircumcised? He was uncircumcised when he started to obey God. And then God told him later, get circumcised, and he did it. It says his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Again, it's faith which leads to works, not works that lead to faith. If you get circumcised, it doesn't mean that you're going to be faithful to God's commandments just because you got circumcised. And see, that's what the Judaizers were all about. Jesus said, you're hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make a convert, and then you turn them into twice the son of hell as you are. They were all about circumcise first, then teach Torah later. Let's just make sure that they're in the fold, and then we'll teach them stuff. And Paul's like, no, 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 you got it backwards. You've got to teach it first so that they'll understand what they're getting into. Because what if you circumcise and then teach them, and then they say, oh, well, that's not for me. And then they go off and... They, everybody knows they're circumcised, and yet they're living like a Gentile again. It, it just blows the testimony. and blow, So that's what's, that's what's being talked about here. Therefore, if uncircumcised keep the righteous decrees of the Torah, will not his circumcision be counted as circumcision? Because ultimately, circumcision begins in the heart before it manifests in the flesh. It's like when we get saved and we're encouraged to get baptized. Do you need to be baptized in order to be right with God? No. Do you need to be baptized in order to go to heaven? No. But when you do get baptized, it's just that physical, symbolic representation of, of what's already occurred in your heart. So faith was already in Abraham's heart, and he got circumcised afterwards, and that circumcision was that physical manifest sign of what already happened in his heart. Just like when we get baptized, that's a physical representation of, already, of what's already occurred in our heart. Same thing. All right, verse 20, 27. Indeed, the one not circumcised physically who fulfills the Torah will judge you, who, even with the written code and circumcision, break the Torah. So a lot of times, converts are more zealous than those who are born into that religion, and they actually keep the covenant better than the ones born into the covenant. <laughs> that's the ironic thing. And that's the way it's intended to be because Paul said we are to provoke, the Gentiles are to provoke the Jews to jealousy. How? By keeping God's commands better than they do. How can we keep the commands better than they do? Jesus told us. We keep it not only physically, outwardly, but we keep it in our hearts. We don't just not stab somebody in the back. We don't murder them in our heart. We don't just not jump in bed with somebody not our spouse. We don't commit adultery in our heart. 
So that's taking it up to the next level, taking it up to another notch. That is keeping God's commands better than a, a, a lot of the uh, uh, natural-born Jews uh, or, or Hebrews do themselves. Verse um, 28, for one is not a Jew who is outwardly. So, okay, first of all, what, is, what does the word Jew mean? Jew comes from the word Judah. Judah means praise God. And when we do according to what God commands us, we are praising him with our life. So that's what the word Jew means. For one is not a Jew who is outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible in the flesh. Rather, the Jew is one inwardly. And this is where we get you know, people talking about, oh, I'm a spiritual Jew, I'm a spiritual Jew. Okay, well, that's fine, but that doesn't negate the fact that there's physical Jews, and that's important too. Physical Jews have not been done away with. Rather, see, this is a basis for what's called replacement theology. Replacement theology is where the Gentile church says, the Jews blew it. They had a great opportunity, and they blew it, and God's done with them. So now he's going to take the Gentiles, and he's going to transfer the covenants from them to us. Well, that would make God a liar, because God promised these covenants unconditionally to the Jewish people. He didn't say, if you screw up, I'm going to change my mind. So this is, this is the basis of replacement theology. So I understand when people say spiritual Jew, but a lot of times that's used as a touchstone or a springboard for this replacement theology that we've got to be very, very careful of. Uh, rather, the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart and spirit, not the letter. Uh, his, uh, his praise is not from men, but from God. All right, so let's break these verses down. Okay, we still got plenty of time. All right, break these verses down. Let's go back to verse 25. <laughs> circumcision is indeed worthwhile if you keep the Torah, but if you break the Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So look at it this way. A diet is worthwhile if you follow the dietary regimen, but if you cheat on the diet, it doesn't do you any good. That's kind of a sum, sum, summarization of verse 25. Verse 26, Therefore, if the uncircumcised keep the righteous decrees of the Torah, would not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So therefore, if a non-dieter follows the diet, won't it just, um, uh, won't it just be as if they've gone on the diet? Even though they say uh, they have not officially said, I'm going on this diet, and they follow the diet anyway, it's still going to benefit them anyway, right? It's going to benefit them nonetheless. All right, verse 27. Indeed, the one not circumcised physically who fulfills the Torah will judge you who, even with the written code and circumcision, break the Torah. So a non-dieter who, who, um, who eats according to the diet will put to shame the dieter who cheated on his diet. Is that making sense? Hopefully things are getting more, even more clear. 28 and 29. For one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible in the flesh. Rather, the Jew is one inwardly. And see, this, this is that principle, faith before works. It's inwardly. The Jew is somebody who's inward, and then it manifests on the outside. Rather, the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart and spirit, not, uh, not the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, so let's say that this diet is this big publicized program that's got these special exercise equipment, special menus, special gear and t-shirts and clothes and stuff you wear. For one who is not a dieter, 
and doesn't wear the diet program gear is really a dieter anyway because uh, he nonetheless follows the program. A person is a dieter because he eats according to the diet, not because he wears the dietary gear. So just because somebody's circumcised doesn't make them, you know, a Jew per se, because a Jew is somebody that's from the inside out, not the outside in. So circumcision is a reiteration uh, or is reiterated in the Mosaic Covenant, but it's a pre-Torah command. Because when was the command of circumcision given? It was given before Moses, given to Abraham. And it was the specific command given to him and to his descendants. In other words, those that are genetically related to them. So those who are of pure Gentile stock are not obligated. They can voluntarily get circumcised if they want to, but they're not obligated. So Torah itself was given primarily to Israel and secondly to the world, which was represented by the mixed multitude that was with Israel when the Torah was given at Sinai. So it was, it was primarily focused and meant for Israel. But at the same time, the mixed multitude was there at the foot of the mountain, and they agreed to follow Torah with Israel at the very same time. So they, by secondary, it was given to them. And that's why Paul always says to the Jew first, always to the Greek. So circumcision is only obligatory to the descendants of Abraham, Israel. But circumcision was given to Abraham and his descendants before it was given in the Torah. Circumcision is a covenant. Representing the covenant God made to Abraham and his descendants only, and those under the roof. So, you know, yes, only those who are descended from Abraham were circumcised, but who else was circumcised involuntarily, let's say? The slaves, the slaves or those that were adopted into the family. Those under his roof was circumcised. That was a requirement. So it was as if they were adopted into their family. Circumcision became the symbol of the first century conversion to Judaism and to the Messianic faith only to those who voluntarily wanted to be circumcised. So first century believers, there were three, I don't even want to say classes of people because that kind of gives pecking order and that's not what this is about. Three categories of believers. You had the Jewish believers. Those were the believers that were circumcised on the eighth day. You had the converts that came to Judaism later in life, accepted the Messiah later in life, and because they were a convert, they were circumcised later in life. Then you had those that were called the God-fearers. And they went to synagogue and the temple right along with the converts and with the Jews, but they, for whatever reason, decided not to get circumcised. They didn't feel like it was necessary for them, like it was obligatory to them. So those were the three classes of people in the first century church. So the Apostle Paul was saying, if you convert via circumcision, but then keep living like a pagan Gentile, your circumcision is meaningless. It's basically what he's saying. So, bottom line, circumcision has zero to do with salvation. It meant um, then, as it does today, you voluntarily de uh, decide to become a full-fledged Jew by entering the covenant of Abraham via circumcision and living the Jewish lifestyle. So when you become circumcised, if you convert... Then you're saying, you know what, I like the way the Jews live, I like the way they practice, I want to be like them, I want to follow you know, that, that lifestyle. That's what that means. So for instance, me being Jewish, my name is Yehuda ben Shomer. I am Judah, son of Shomer. But if I was a convert, my name would be Yehuda or Judah ben Abraham. So everybody who converts has the last name son of Abraham or daughter of Abraham. 
because they're entering because through circumcision they're entering in to the Abrahamic covenant. Now we know that women can't get circumcised, so how did they convert? They converted through you know a declaration, a statement of faith, and through baptism, and that's the way they were converted. All right, so um, all right, circumcision is more than cutting off the foreskin of the male phallus. It physically represents a change of the heart, like water baptism in Protestantism represents the same thing. Circumcision, then, is like what baptism is to Christianity today. The Apostle Paul emphasized uh, one is a Jew from the inside out, not the outside in. So it's faith to works, not works to faith. So, is baptism a requirement for salvation? No, but there's some cults that say that, that it is. That's just like circumcision. It's not a requirement for salvation, but the Judaizers, who believed in Jesus, said that it was. So they were kind of like the cult fringe of that day, so to speak. Um, now, both are encouraged, baptism and circumcision. They're both encouraged, but they're not required for salvation. So Paul kind of says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, don't feel like you have to. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that. So he's basically saying, don't feel obligated. If you come to Messiah and you don't feel like getting circumcised, don't worry. Don't, don't feel obligated. Just stay as you are. Stay who you are. But if you feel compelled, and see, this is one thing. This is a philosophy in Judaism, that people who have that compulsion, who want to be circumcised, they believe may be one of the lost tribes of Israel. Because think about it. There's ten tribes that have been assimilated into the nations and they are descendants of Abraham, and they don't even know it. But yet there's something that's inside them that pulls them to want to live that way and want to be circumcised. The Jewish people say that they have that spark of God in their heart like a homing beacon that calls them home. That's what happened to me. I didn't know I was Jewish until later in life. And then I started doing research in my answer. It's like, wow, now I know why I feel this way. Now I know why I, I feel compelled to do these things. But Paul says if you find yourself people pressuring you, don't be pressured because if that's not what you want to do, don't be forced to do it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 through 24, it says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, let him walk in this way. I give this rule in all Messiah's communities. Was anyone called when he was already circumcised? Then let him not make himself uncircumcised. Has anyone been called while uncircumcised? Let him not allow himself to be circumcised. Now Paul's saying, well, if you're saved, if you're a Gentile and you're saved, don't get circumcised. He's not saying that. He's basically saying, if you want to, fine, but don't feel obligated to. So he's like, if you were saved while you're uncircumcised, don't allow yourself to be uncircumcised, implying if that's not what you want. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping God's commands is what matters. And again, it's faith. And what is faith? Faith is being faithful to a set of principles. When, when a spouse is deemed faithful, it means that they're not running around on their significant other. So being faithful to God's commands is the key. Let each one remain in the calling in which he was called. Were you a slave? Don't let that bother you. But if indeed you can become free, make the most of the opportunity. For the one who was called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. 
Likewise, the one who is called while free is Messiah's slave. You who are bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. Okay, we'll just kind of stop right there. Okay. All right, we're trucking through here. So, um, if I know how to work on a car, it doesn't matter if I wear a three-piece suit or a gorilla costume instead of a jumpsuit. You'd expect me to wear a jumpsuit to work on a car, but if I knew how to work on a car, I could work on a car wearing a three-piece suit or a gorilla costume. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter on what's on the outside. It matters on what's on the inside. And just because I wear a Burger King uniform doesn't mean I'm a whopper flopper. <laughs> right? I've got to be trained. I've got to know what I'm doing. I just can't, you know, I can stand in a car or I can stand in a garage that doesn't make me a car. So just because you get circumcised doesn't make give you any special privileges with God. Doesn't make you any closer to God. But again, if you feel compelled and you want to, there's probably a reason behind that. You may be one of the lost tribes. Because it really, think about it, it takes a lot for a guy who's already a grown man to say, hmm, I want to do this. <laughs> it's one thing as a baby. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is because I discovered my Jewish lineage later in life, luckily I was already circumcised. So I didn't have to go through the full-blown thing. So what they do instead, if you've already been circumcised but still want to convert, they do what's called a hadafat dombrit. And what it is is they take what's like a spring-loaded diabetic lancet and they just, uh, you know, prick the area where you've been circumcised to draw one drop of blood because the blood is the key to cutting the covenant. And that's put on a gauze and that is proof of your conversion. So I've got mine all framed and everything. It's not on my wall. I don't want everybody to say, hey, look, there's my phallus blood. But I have it as a memorial, right? And I have my certificate of conversion. Uh, okay. So let's go to verse Romans 2, verse 20, 27. Indeed, let me check on the time here. Okay, we still got time. Indeed, the one not circumcised physically who fulfills the Torah will judge you, uh, even with the written code and circumcision, break the Torah. All right, so this is that principle that converts keep the Torah better than Jews themselves do a lot of times. So there's a couple passages I want to read in regards to that verse. Colossians chapter 2.11. Read that really quick. Uh, Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision done not by hands in the stripping away of the body of the flesh through the circumcision of Messiah. And then Romans 11.14 kind of says something a little similar. 11.14 says, If somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. So that's Paul talking about being provoked to jealousy. All right, now back to Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Uh, for one is not a Jew who is who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible. Uh, let me read that again. For one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible in the flesh. Rather, the Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart and spirit, not in the letter. 
His praise is not from men, but from God. So there's two kinds of Jews. Number one, there's the ethnic Jew. Being an ethnic Jew just means you have the DNA of Abraham. You were born into it. You could, be, you could be a secular Jew, you can be a Buddhist Jew, you can be an atheist Jew, you can be, you know, whatever. It's just that you're ethnically born a Jewish person. Then there's the religious Jew. It's the Jew who practices their religion, culture, and faith. So there's two kinds of Jews. Now a Jew is from the inside out, not the outside in. So it's faith righteousness before works righteousness. Now this is... This is Something, we're going to head into another subject. Okay, yeah, I think I got time to cover it before our class ends. Believe it or not, circumcision of the heart is not a New Testament thing. I bet you thought it was. Oh, Paul said it. He said it in Romans, so he must have come up with it. No, circumcision of the heart is an Old Testament thing, and I'll prove it to you. Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26 starting with verse 40. But if they confess their iniquities, that is their lawlessness, and that of their fathers and treachery that they committed against me, and how they walked contrary to me, in return I will walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. And if at that time their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, oh, if it mentions uncircumcised heart in Leviticus, then it must mean there must be a circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament. So in return, I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. That's just fulfilling the curses of Deuteronomy 28 for disobedience of God's laws. And if at that time their uncircumcised hearts become humbled so that they accept the punishment for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. So that's the first uh, indication there of circumcision of the heart being an Old Testament thing before it was even a New Testament thing. Another passage that backs this up because by two or three, three witnesses let everything be established. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumc circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Therefore, do not be stiff-necked anymore. Pretty, pretty plain, pretty convincing. Now, not only is it in the Torah, but it's also in the prophets. So let me see if I can uh, get to get to Jeremiah here. Okay, Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 4.4 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to Adonai and remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, else my wrath will break out like fire ablaze, with no one to quench it because of your evil deeds. So here, the children of Israel are being addressed over and over and over and over about circumcision of the heart, which means they're circumcised physically, but the way they're acting, they act as if they're not circumcised at all. So when they repent, they don't have to get circumcised all over again. They have to circumcise their heart because that's where it stems from. So we have Jeremiah 4.4, and then we also have Jeremiah 9.24. See, when you don't read the Old Testament, the things that you miss. Uh, 9.24, 
The days are coming soon, declares Adonai, when I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Boy, that sounds like a contradiction. I will punish those who are circumcised, meaning circumcised in the flesh, and yet uncircumcised, meaning in their heart. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. So Egypt, Judah, Edom, and Ammon's children in Moab, and all that have cut the corners of their hair that dwell in the wilderness, for all their nations are uncircumcised, but all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. And one final passage in the prophets that talk about the circumcision of the heart is Yehezkel, which is the Hebrew word for Ezekiel. He's the guy who saw the wheel. He was the biblical version of the Michelin man. Uh, <laughs> Ezekiel 44.9 Thus says Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, may enter my sanctuary, nor any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So even Gentiles can be uncircumcised in heart. So there you go. Now, just as I said, to reiterate, there are three categories of first century Nazarene or Messianic Jews. The Jew who was born a Jew and was circumcised the eighth day. The convert who come to Judaism and was circumcised. And the God-fearer who decides to obey the commandments without being circumcised and be a part of the community without feeling that obligation of being circumcised. Uh, okay. Now... Acts chapter 15, Gentiles start coming into the faith by conversion and being God-fears. And sometime after Paul's death, Gentiles ended up breaking away from the Messianic Jewish movement and slowly started to become what we know as the Gentile Christian church today. Nazarene and Messianic Jews was an accepted sect of Judaism up until the Bar Kokhba revolt. So Jews who believed in Jesus were accepted they were kind of looked at as weirdos, weren't totally understood, but they weren't totally repelled at that particular time. They worshipped in synagogues with the other Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. They went to the temple with other Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. But there come a time when Rabbi Akiva uh, saw this great general, and this general was going to stand up against the Roman occupation and was going to fight. And Rabbi Akiva said, he is Moshiach. He is the Messiah, meaning he's the anointed one. So come and join with us and fight. And the Jewish believers are like, wait a second, we're all for overthrowing Rome. But we're not going to follow a false messiah. We know who the messiah is, and this guy ain't it. This Bar Kokhba guy ain't it. Like, fine, you're traitors. Get away from us. That's when the Nazarene Messianic movement split off from the Jewish body at large and became a thing in and of itself. When you say, uh, you mentioned uh, on the eighth day, yep. circumcision, uh -huh. is that supposed to be when, like, Say when the baby's born, right, and that's done. Is it supposed to be done on the eighth day? Yes. Is that um, right? Because eight is the symbol of new beginnings. Because seven days make a week. Right. The eighth day is begins a new week. Right. It represents a new beginning. Okay. And so it's interesting that when God commanded that a child be circumcised, a male child be circumcised on the eighth day, thousands of years later, scientists discover, hey, guess what? Vitamin K starts kicking in on the eighth day, which is the clotting factor for blood. Very interesting. So, okay, we're pushing it, but I want to read this article that I had written about circumcision, and then we'll end the class. I'm really happy that we got through this and didn't have to make this a two-parter. So bear with me as I read. To circumcise or not to circumcise, that is the question. Many people misinterpret the writings of the Apostle Paul and say that we don't have to keep circumcision. Okay, here's the crux of the issue. 
The Judaizers argue you must be circumcised to be saved. Circumcised first and teach Torah later. The Apostle Paul says, if you think your foreskin is your ticket to heaven, you're sorely mistaken. What sense does it make to circumcise first only to have the convert disagree with some of the commands and say, eh, this isn't for me, and splits. In this instance, the circumcision would have all been in vain, thus harming the Lord's name and reputation and our reputation among the Gentiles by publicly professing the Lord, his Torah and his Messiah, but yet living contrary to that. No, teach Torah first, then circumcise. See, this is the way that Judaism approach, approaches converts. If somebody comes up today, if somebody was to approach a, a rabbi and say, I, I want to be a Jew. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to be a Jew. You don't know how hard it is to be a Jew. We're persecuted. We've been shoved here and there and the pogroms and the Holocaust. No, no, no. And let's say the guy comes back later, not dissuaded. No, no, no. I'm serious. I really want to be a Jew. No, 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 no. You don't. You just don't understand the obligation. The tradition is you reject a Gentile three times, but if he comes back a fourth, then he's serious. That's one way you can tell. So that's that's kind of the way they, that it's operated. Okay. Um, the reputation and responsibility of being circumcised is comparable to that of Christian baptism. A potential convert to Judaism underwent a year of training in the Torah. We find this in Acts chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Even today, when one converts to Judaism, if the convert disagrees even with one commandment, including circumcision, he can't become a Jew. This work is not meant to be an exhaustive expository uh, um, on this passage, but um, I will cover one for you. In Galatians 2.3, it speaks of Titus not being compelled to be circumcised. The reason for the Apostle Paul's statement for this is so that as not to give the false authority to the Judaizers, these are the Pharisaic believers in Jesus, called the sect of the circumcision, who believed one must be circumcised to be saved, and they were lording over the people. Therefore, it would, uh, it would not appear as if the Apostle Paul was agreeing or siding with the Judaizers on their interpretation of the Torah and how to keep the commandments. The Apostle Paul wanted it to be Titus's decision and not a decision based on peer pressure. Not only that, but if Titus were to undergo the Brit Malah, the circumcision, under the Judaizers, this would display publicly that Titus followed and agreed with what the Judaizers said in their way of practicing the law. So whatever sect you convert under is the sect that you say, I agree with the way they keep the, the, the word of God. And you're expected to keep it. This argument is similar to the modern-day arguments by the sect of Protestant Christianity, such as, you have to be baptized to be saved. We know that those are cults that say that. So, by the way, infant baptism and baby dedications have replaced circumcision uh, in, in Christian circles. Or, you have to speak in tongues to be saved. That would be an example of a Christian Judaizer, because, you know, they got the wrong focus. We all know nothing could be further from the truth. Same with circumcision. Paul was not saying it wasn't important or unnecessary. He only said it doesn't save you and it is optional for Gentiles. Also, one must remember that circumcision was a command given to Abraham in Genesis 17 and his descendants prior to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai to Moses and Israel. So circumcision applied literally to the sons of Abraham and ones who choose to become sons of Abraham and convert to Judaism via the post-Maccabean ritual of circumcision. So circumcision for Gentiles is a choice, not a command. But the obedience to the Torah is incumbent upon Jews as well as Gentiles. That may shock some of you. But, again, 
Not all of the commands in the Torah apply to a single individual or even apply to our situation today. There are some commandments that are only for men, some that are only for women, some that are only for kings of Israel, some that are only for farmers in Israel, um, and some that are only for the Levitical priests. So, you know, people say, well, if you're going to follow the law, does that mean you're going to uh, sacrifice? Well, no. Why? The law says it. Because we can't. We don't live in Israel, and the temple's not standing. So what is required for that law to be in effect is not applicable. So it doesn't apply to us. Uh, okay. But the obedience of the Torah is incumbent upon Jews as well as the Gentiles, who choose to follow and worship the God of Israel. People try to spiritualize the Torah command of circumcision and say that since Jesus came, we no longer have to do it outwardly but inwardly, basing that on what we just read in Romans 2, 28-29 and Colossians 2:11. This is what Rabbi Trim had to say on his paper on the subject. Physical circumcision was to be a required token of the covenant for all generations forever, Genesis 17, 9 through 14. The circumcision of the heart is mentioned in the writings of the Nazarenes in Romans 2, 28 through 29, Colossians 2, 11, things that we just read. Many have misunderstood the circumcision of the heart as being a substitute for physical circumcision. However, the circumcision of the heart was not a substitute for physical circumcision, nor substitute for Torah observance in general. In context here, it seems to refer to the removing of the stubbornness in one's heart and making it open for God's laws, God's instructions. This Torah tells us to circumcise our heart, Deuteronomy 10.16. And love God with all of our heart and keep his commandments, Deuteronomy 11, 1 and 13. And place the Torah in our hearts, Deuteronomy 11, 18. Thus, circumcision of the heart would seem to involve loving God and keeping his commandments and placing the Torah in our hearts. So what is the Torah? We often say it's translated law, which is a valid translation, but a better translation is God's instructions. These are God's instructions on how we are to live physically, mentally, and spiritually and get the most out of life. Here's the portion of a letter I received regarding this uh, important issue. I'm aware that Romans 11 says that we are engrafted into Israel through Messiah. I want to do everything possible for my creator and not just be a simple God-fearer God using uh, Acts 15 and Noahide laws. When it says that a Gentile should remain as they are and Jews as they are, what does this mean? I am just confused over the whole conversion thing. Thank you in advance. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 21, only as God has disturbed. Okay, we already read that. Uh, that it, you know, you are to remain as you are. But again, it's all about a choice. Romans uh, 2, okay. All right. So according to the Peshitta text, the whole circumcision thing is dealing with a sect called the circumcision, who tried to convince the people that if you were not circumcised, and in their way, and all that that means that you weren't saved. Paul is reiterating that before the male phallus is circumcised, the heart must be. And the heart is more important than that of the flesh. It is not saying circumcision is obsolete, but that the heart comes first. In whatever state you came to Messiah is fine. Do not feel obligated to change in any way. But if you want to, and uh, if you want to, uh, and, and have the ability to do so, just make sure that your motive for circumcision is for the right reasons. So, circumcision is like having a PC card at the superstore. Anyone can shop at the superstore, 
just like anyone can be saved. However, not everyone can get the same deals. Those who have the PC Plus card will get perks, being a member, get a discount, get a benefit, certain bargains, just as those who are circumcised get the benefit of certain, certain aspects of the covenant, which is the promised land, which is partaking in the Passover lamb, just to name a few. Just as those who do not have the uh, PC Plus card will not have certain privileges, it's like those who are not circumcised. It doesn't mean that you're a second-class citizen. It just means that there's certain things that only apply to circumc circumcision people. So, like, we we have Passover today, but why can we have Passover, and why can you be invited? You guys aren't converted. Why can I invite you to a Passover? Because we don't need a Passover lamb. Passover lambs were only sacrificed in the temple, and we don't eat a Passover lamb because there is no temple. So that's why Gentiles can come to Passover meals. And you don't have to get checked at the door if you're circumcised or not. Isn't that great? <laughs> All right, drop them. Okay. All right, almost finished here. Some may argue that circumcision is only for those born a Jew. This is not true. Circumcision is for anyone who wanting to follow the God of Israel and become a part of the people of Israel. The Gentiles who came out of Egypt with Israel agreed to keep the Torah, and that included circumcision, Exodus 12, 38, and 19.8. Besides, when circumcision was first instituted, uh, not only the first Jew partook of it, Abraham, who was not even a Jew until he was circumcised, but the whole household, which was made up of foreign servants, Gentiles, Genesis 17, 9-14. If circumcision wasn't important, then why was the Lord ready to kill Moses over the issue? And Exodus 4. 24 through 26. Eddie Chumney, in his paper about circumcision, concluded the paper in this manner. In the context, we can come to the conclusion that Paul was not teaching against circumcision or following Torah, but was making the argument that physical circumcision without faith in Messiah has no eternal value. The Torah, the prophets, and the New Testament teach us that the ideal is having faith in Messiah, have circumcised hearts, and seek to follow God's instructions which includes physical circumcision. The Lord requires physical circumcision when you enter the land of Israel, speaking of you know, the, the descendants of Abraham. If you have faith in Messiah are, uh, and are circumcised in your heart, the Lord is more lenient towards you, if you have, uh, uh, as if you have been born in the wilderness or in the nations of the world, because the land outside of the land of Israel has less sanctity than the land of Israel. However, during the Messianic era, those who live in the land of Israel and who desire to fellowship in the temple will be required to be circumcised in the heart and in the flesh. So we know that in the millennial kingdom uh, that Ezekiel points out the parameters of the tribes of Israel. So that is where those of the tribes, Judah and the lost tribes that have returned and that are returning now fulfilling prophecy, that's where they're going to live because they're circumcised and God promised them that land. So the Gentiles are going to live outside of that on the Millennial Kingdom. So hopefully this – does that all kind of clear up the whole circumcision issue? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so when you know, it seems like the, the, the Christian church always wants to poo-poo on circumcision like it's the most horriblest thing in the world. But you got to understand, you know, the spiritual doesn't negate the physical. You know, if I have a – if I – if there's a shadow on the ground, that shadow – is, is, is something that you can't touch. It's something that's intangible. But you know that it's real because there's something physical that's causing the cast of that shadow. So it's just like the spiritual doesn't negate the physical. Is that, 
Does that make sense? Okay, so hopefully we get a better idea of what Paul meant when he wrote this and what he was saying, because I know in Christianity we've heard so many opposite things and so many different things, but I'm bringing Romans to you from a Messianic Jewish perspective, which is probably totally different than you've ever heard. Now, did I hurt anybody's feelings, or did anybody feel threatened by that message? Nope. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Do you have to be circumcised to follow God? No. No. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? No. But what if you want to? Is that okay? All right. We've got it cleared up. All right. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your word is really simple. And we as mankind in our own biases of our culture have just misinterpreted it and just... Uh, just kind of made a mess of things and confused things. But Lord, once we get back to your word, back to the historical and linguistic context of what is being written, it all becomes clear. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're revealing to us through the book of Romans. So help us as we continue to uh, uh, trek through this, this document and to understand it the way Paul intended for the Jew, for the Jewish Gentile, if you will, those that have assimilated, and those that are pure Gentile stock, because we're all included in God's plan of salvation. We are all grafted, you know, if we're not part of the natural root, the natural branch, we've been grafted in. And those who, who have been born in can be broken off and be regrafted back in. And we'll get into that later into this document. So we thank you and we praise you for that. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.